Welcome to Measures of Truth, a Historic Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. I'm Francis. And I'm Anya. And today we're discussing chapters 33 through 35 of The Amber Spyglass, the third book in the His Dark Materials trilogy. Chapter 33, Marzipan, Lyra, Will, and Mary talk to each other a lot. In doing so, they conveniently justify the ghost of that woman from the world of the dead, exhorting Mary to tell them stories. Will tells his story first, then Mary tells the tale of why she became a nun and how she lost her faith by feeling the desire for romantic love. That's not how I would describe that, but I didn't write this. Her story (laughs) makes Lyra feel funny for a reason she can't understand or explain. In chapter 34, there is now. Mary's tree comes crashing down, and she spots the prowling murder priest. In between, she has an epiphany. The Malefica trees began having issues 300 years ago, right around when the subtle knife was first invented. So the dust must be leaking out through all the windows cut by the knife. In chapter 35, over the hills and far away, a weak but determined Balthamos returns and kills the murder priest before dying himself. Lyra and Will save the world by possibly fucking. (laughs) Thank you for changing that one word, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, Kate definitely objects to. Definitely not, probably. Right, so, general feelings. How are we all feeling about this one? I really liked these ones. They're great. I love character stuff. Yeah, I mean, I pretty much agree with that. Like, I just thought they were genuinely enjoyable to read and well-written. It was reading three three chapters of a book that I love. Like, that's that's good. I remember the end of this book being kind of like boring and underwhelming at least compared to books one and two Uh, but this time i actually have been really enjoying it and i think that it's kind of just a matter of expectations like it has a really different um pacing and kind of like priorities in the writing compared to the first two books it's more about the theme and the character work rather than like the plotting and excitement it's not like a big battle climax you know that happens earlier and then we have this like super long period of of wrapping things up but um you know the theme and character work is really really good and the prose is also really really good so yeah i i think it's uh it's been good i think that's a really good point about comparing it to the previous two books in terms of how the ending rolls out Learning Mary's story is like kind of a climax to her arc and what we get with Will and Lyra is an ending to their budding romance. Like it's a culmination of it, possibly, probably, maybe. I don't think they have They They bump against each other like moths. No. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Oh my God. So there's there's not much action here, but I I really like how Pullman slows things down to let the characters like be themselves here. I genuinely think uh, just in the comparison to the other two endings that in both of them, he has not given typical endings to any of them. Like in the first one, they save the kids and then she has to go deal with the polar bears, but the saving of the kids or as many as possible, whatever, saving of Roger, well, no, no, fake saving of Roger. Um, that sort of seems like that's where the story should end. Totally. I see. Yeah. And then in the yeah, second one. Yeah, then it keeps going. Yeah. And then Roger dies. And then Roger which is... dies, yeah. And then in the second one, there is that big, like, air battle, but that's not even affecting them, really, the kids. Right. That's just sort of over there. 
I would say the big like climax of book two is Will talking to his dad. Mm-hmm. And then his dad's yeah. suddenly dead. Dispassionately put, but yeah. <laughs> I thought when you said the the of the three endings, I thought you you were implying there were three endings to this book and like I just hadn't like unglued some pages or something. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait, what? That sounds amazing. <laughs> I'm glad that while Will was telling his story about his dad, we get reminded about that witch killing him and it not making a goddamn bit of sense. Yeah. yeah. Even the explanation they give here, I was just like, well, witches are fierce. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I did like, I did enjoy Mary being like, um, yeah, so like love is love is a thing that people it's like yeah but he wasn't her lover and she you can just hear her eyes go whoa that bitch crazy (laughs) (laughs) it does feel like a response to like readers in that part to me where i I think lyra at one point says like well when i first met you it said that you you said that you didn't have to think about good and evil what did you mean by that? But I like that, that he's like in dialogue a little bit with his readers in that part. But I don't know. That's also like considered bad writing by a lot of people. I really do wish there was like an opportunity to see like the editor letters that some uh, authors get. Because I would love to know what the... I, it's not even necessarily that I want to read the first draft as so much as I just want to know what an editor had to say about it. Favorite part? I think we all kind of said the same thing. I tried to narrow mine down a bit, so you guys go first. I mean, Mary's love story, I really liked it. It felt like an actual love story told by an actual person. And that's I, I think that that is some of... Honestly, I think it's some of the better writing in this series because it's the most believable. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think at like... It has a lot to say about philosophy and religion without feeling didactic or like luxury. Um, and there were a lot of parts of it that really resonated with me, um, despite the fact that I was never none, both in terms of the way that Mary relates to her belief in God, and also just kind of like other people's expectations. I think there's a lot in her story that's very universal beyond the specifics of her situation. um, And that Pullman just like exquisitely spells out. Yes, agreed. I had a close second for me was a guardian angel who murders people. Really like that. (laughs) You gotta have that, right? Yeah, that's cool. I do love how Balthamus kind of became like a guardian angel. That was, yeah. that was good. But like the worst kind of guardian, like if you're going to do a guardian angel, he totally goes against convention, right? Like he's a coward. Yeah, that's why it's he, great. I love yeah. it. Yeah. He's like kind of whiny and annoying, but like when push comes to shove, like he will murder the murder he priest literally for you. murder someone. It was like, whoa. <laughs> Uh, my favorite was also Mary's story, but for like many, many different reasons. I, I do love how in this story about how she decided she didn't believe in God, it does kind of feel like she's preaching, but not in a bad way. This line that Mary has after she's left the church where she says, I felt as if something they all passionately believed in depended on me carrying on with something I didn't. Uh, that was probably my favorite part. I really loved that line. And it like it says a lot about how a lot of people appear to approach faith that they need other people mm-hmm. to believe in it for mm-hmm. their own faith right. to matter mm, and yeah that's interesting because it's all, all a lot of the people that she's talking about are people who are in authority positions over her like her parents and her priest when she was a nun and that sort of thing these people who raise us and mentor us all need us to passionately believe in the same things that they believe in i don't know it's just a really good line Yeah, because their authority is meaningless if they step out. If you step out of your position of being under authority, then it's meaningless. How could you do that to us? We put so much into your belief. It feels extremely prescient given that a lot of the things that are going on today with like Christo-fascists in America 
And, you know, there's like a whole generation of parents who are really upset that their adult children are leaving the faith because they were, you know, raised in like the late 70s, 80s and 90s with the idea that like, if you follow these, you know, Christian child training manuals exactly, you'll produce mini clones of yourself, like soldiers for Christ and all of that. I mean, I think... Pullman was writing this in a slightly gentler time, and maybe it's the in a more gentle British context than the current American context, but it still really speaks to what is happening in America today. Agreed. It's also important to remember that, like, probably the most famous example of, you know, forcing their beliefs on somebody right now is a British lady who people used to think was very progressive in her writing. Oh, and then we realise she's a terrible bastard. <laughs> and editor, you cannot take that out. <laughs> so, I I would say going back to the favorite part real quick before we move on from this, that my, you know, you zooming in on that one part, Caitlin, just made me think that one of the things that she says, and I don't I don't have the text in front of me, so I'm not going to be able to quote it. The kids ask her. Like, do you miss believing in God? And she has like a real like sense of, I don't want to say like regret, but like that something was lost for her that feels very real and authentic and important to me in the themes of the book and and for Mary's character. What we were talking about last time with existentialism and about life starting after despair her carrying the weight of losing something in that belief is like a really important part of what Mary is, I think. I just really, really appreciate that part. So I actually pulled that quote and put it down in the religion section. So we can talk about it more later. But yeah, totally agree with you on that. I want to hear Anya's rant that she has written part of here. So let's move on to least favorite part. Oh my god. Okay. Yes, tell us. So... There is a line in here, which I think is the worst line of dialogue I've ever read in any book. And it's just the words, well, she said, but it's, oh, it's so bad. So basically, Lyra is going down to the water alone. There's like a beautiful description of the heron standing perfectly still on one leg. She's walking quickly. And then it's just says, well, she said. And then it goes into more description of her um, taking off her clothes and swimming in the river and how she'd never swum in salt water before. And it's just a line of dialogue that doesn't need, like, it doesn't need to be there. It doesn't do anything. Dialogue needs to earn its place in a story. Otherwise, you can just describe it with prose. He basically has two paragraphs of beautiful prose and then sticks one word of useless dialogue between them. He could have just said something like, she sighed thoughtfully, or, you know, whatever. Some, the the fact that she specifically said the word well out loud to herself does not matter. It just interrupts the flow and sounds really stupid and terrible. It's like, you know how Lonnie always says that reality is no excuse for fiction? That if you wrote dialogue in the way that people actually talk, it would be confusing and boring and terrible. Whoever his editor was, I can't believe they didn't just strike out that line. It adds nothing. It just interrupts what is otherwise beautiful prose. And it made me so mad. I was like, Mrs. Scarlet with flames coming out of the side (laughs) of my head. I will contend one tiny point there, which is that I think sometimes, I think when you have speech that is edited for prose, it is of a particular style. And there are definitely books I've read, though the names of them sadly escape me, where dialogue is written in a more natural style and it works because it's explicitly that more natural style. So I think it's Whilst a general rule to follow is don't write it as you'd speak it in general, you can write prose which has that style of speech in it that works. 
Yeah, I don't disagree at all. I just think that in this case, it adds nothing. It just shit. feels very disjointed and pulls you out of the story. And it's like, do we really need to know that she said the word well out loud to herself? No, no, we don't. It doesn't bother me. <laughs> so my least favorite part was edited without my consent. <laughs> I wonder who might have been doing that, Anya. What it actually says, well, what it said, which has now been scrubbed from the record, was marzipan. I just don't get why people like it. It's a terrible food. And whilst yes. that is my opinion, it was not the point I was going to make. <laughs> but also, seriously, marzipan, really, of all of the things? Like, pick some fucking dates or something, they're way better. I'm actually glad you brought this up, because <laughs> I think that this is another interesting parallel that this book has with Narnia. <laughs> because yeah. so the, the, Tur- the Turkish delight, Turkish delight. Yeah. yes no exactly both foods I tried <laughs> after reading these books and both I was horribly disappointed in <laughs> <laughs> Turkish delight the first time I tried it I was like oh this is going to be great they, they talk about it in Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe I had yeah. it whilst I was watching um, Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe <sighs> and it was awful yep Okay, the actual least favourite part that I was going to talk about was why the fuck does their romance solve the dust flood? Why? Like, the implication is maybe they loved each other that much, so are we saying that the Malefa just didn't love each other enough? Is that the reason? Like, what the fuck, man? I always just thought it was more that they were the chosen ones, that it had to be them. The whole the whole point of these books is that predetermination is fundamentally a bit of a weird concept, and then we look at what that brings to religion. We go, oh, maybe it's a little fucked up. Why are we suddenly using that as a crutch just now? Well, we've, it's been used throughout the whole book, though, throughout the whole series. Like, why can Lyra read the alethiometer? Why why is yeah, it's, Will it's the one with the knife? <sighs> we've taken the god out of the religion and put it in the machine. Yes, I, I don't disagree, but I think it's because it had to be them. But why? It, it's, it really particularly stuck out to me. Like the other ones I could look over, but here it's like... It feels like the theme is invading the plot. Oh, I've never, heard it, I've never heard it said like that, and I love that. I don't know. I, I prefer... So like Caitlin was saying earlier that she's happy with this part because it, it goes into the characters and that's like her thing. Obviously, I really like theme. I don't... This doesn't bother me too much but even for me it feels like uh what like it doesn't it doesn't necessarily follow and the chosen oneness is weird in the way that i think francis is articulating could be like just spitballing like obviously i agree the text had to have more here but just spitballing it could be that they're from two different worlds maybe that's never happened before Ooh, or is that something about him being the knife bearer, since the knife is the one that made the holes. If you were the knife bearer from uh, you the first thing you'd do is you would cut your way through to the, the world with the most beautiful people and you'd find love. Like, that's the first fucking thing you'd do. <laughs> <laughs> don't give me this shit. Come on. <laughs> it, I don't think there's any mechanical justification for this plot-wise, like magic system-wise. It just is a thing that we find out is true which feels a little jolting like i said i don't mind it so much because if you read the whole thing symbolically like as a psychological like you're coming of age growing up they've like thrown their parents and god literally into a hole and (laughs) and now have like fallen in love and that has like stabilized their identity like all of that tracks right that is like growing up. You have to like throw out the old. You have to find yourself through new experiences, including romance. So like that all tracks to me. It's just this feels clumsier than the other symbolism we've gotten. Yeah, I, I do think it's definitely like Philip Pullman thought of this first. And then that's just the way it was. Yeah. Mm hmm. Uh, my least favorite thing is the fact that people think that Will and Lyra had sex in these chapters, when literally nothing in the text implies that. Yeah, but they totally did, though. <sighs> <laughs> I have an actual counterpoint to that, which is, I don't disagree with what you said on paper, that I don't think there's anything 
in the text itself that implies that, but I think there is a cultural tradition of of 12 year olds having sex (laughs) okay well they're 13 like coming to and in my head no um (laughs) no of (laughs) sex being the thing that changes everything i think people wouldn't assume that they had sex except that it literally saves the worlds and like stops the dust from flowing. And in terms of like things that, you know, a heterosexual pairing can do that have a massive impact on plot. I disagree with everything you just said. Really? I think that's I think that's weird. <laughs> I would I never want that never once even crossed my mind until somebody else brought it up. And I was like, they're children? For the record, I don't actually... I never read it as they fucked, but I think it's a very funny reading. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I choose chaos, okay? Yeah, that, no, that's that's fair, I suppose. In a lot of this book, Pullman is inverting things. And in a lot of literature, sex is described as like a sin that ruins everything and brings people to ruin. And so it feels like a fitting inversion that sex is what in this case actually saves the world. And I do, I just want to say also that like, for me personally, I'm using the word sex here very generally. I think that there is like a cultural heterosexual you know obsession with piv intercourse but sex actually can be a lot more and a lot more expansive than just that i would also say whilst i agree it's icky and disconcerting i know plenty of people who became sexually active around the age of 12 in completely reasonable manners with other 12-year-olds. Like, I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying it's inherently anything, really. But, like, it does happen. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I don't see it happening here, is all, I guess, is what I'm saying. I'm not saying... I don't want to judge anyone, obviously. I know, I know. Anything like that. Nothing like that. I'm saying, when I first read this book... I was 13 or 14, and it never entered my mind that they had sex here. There's a bit later where I thought maybe, not here though. And then when I was an adult talking to somebody, then it was an, somebody who'd read it as an adult who thought they definitely had sex here. And I was like, I don't, I don't think that's what they were going for. And I think that's just a different, like you're coming at a children's book from an adult point of view. I appreciate that it doesn't, explicitly indulge in the tradition that Anya is talking about of like coming of age. There's like a Rubicon that's crossed when you lose your virginity. That is like central that where everything changes. It feels more in this story, like what fundamentally changes is falling in love with someone who also loves you and how that, Yes. changes your life. And that's the important thing that happens here is the emotional connection and the yeah. physical like things that happen between them are an expression of that emotion, which are like secondary to the importance of that connection, which I appreciate. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it, it doesn't really matter what they did physically. They did what felt right for them and their developmental stage yeah and it doesn't it doesn't do the thing that narnia does that we talked about way back in book one with susan uh the problem of susan yeah where it's like oh she's interested in lipstick and stockings and you know all this stuff and so she can't come back to narnia now because she's grown up enough to be interested in sex like it's an explicit denial of that that all I'm fine with. I suppose I've just talked to many people who, like you said, sort of in the chapter summary where they think fucking saved the world. Yeah, that, like, that's, that's weird. not what happened here. <laughs> that's a weird take. Yeah. 
No, that was a very sarcastic thing that I was going to rewrite, and then Francis told me not to. <laughs> I thought it was funnier, but also like That's fair. It, it. I I agree that there's a there's a massive sociological component to this, which is people see fucking as the most extreme form of love. So it's like if you're looking for the most love, then doing doing the physical love apparently is the most love love. It's like, which well, is so weird because we yeah, see every bit... day that fucking is like involving the least amount of love. Yeah. <laughs> like in a general sense. I'm not sure I agree with that statement. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think I think you're absolutely right that like for some people sex is an important part of yeah. the way that they express romantic love. But also, you can definitely have sex in the total absence of romantic love, and you can definitely have romantic love with the absence of sex. Yes. So they're not... That's better. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, it eloquently puts what we were both trying to say. Yes. But actually... (laughs) Anyways, yes, problematic. Problematic. (laughs) Yeah, and oh my god, yes, the dog thing was so bad. And it's funny because I feel like We've complained about it before, but previously it was more implicit, and this time Lyra just straight up says it. Yeah, servants it's like, dogs, or whatever. Servants are yeah, dogs. Yeah, their telos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And thus they enjoy being servants. Yeah. Yeah, Perfect. it has nothing to do with... Good. It has nothing to do with the unluckiness of being born poor and a lack of advancement and, like, social stratification. What is social construction? No, it's just... What? <laughs> or the fact that her as like a parentless but having money orphan got to be educated at Oxford yeah. and her best friend who didn't have money had to work. You know, maybe they're just not educated for fuck's sake. <laughs> they should read like, better books. Oh my God. They should uplift themselves by their bootstraps. I meant maybe they just don't have the opportunities. No, no, no. I know. I know. I know. Okay. 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 I think this is all. I think it's very well written and, and it is intentionally problematic and it's right to point it out like i don't think that this is like pullman is doing this and being like and that's the way the world is right like i don't know do you do you think so i I love the interpretation that this is just lyra being a snub because you know from book one she absolutely was a snub but i don't think i i don't think at this point philip would Philip, as if he's my best friend. Uh, Good old <laughs> Phil. Phil. Would, would write Phil. it that way. Would, would, would Is still thinking of Lyra as that snob from book one. I think this is genuinely Philip Pullman's thoughts on the matter, which is super problematic. Yeah, I guess we've talked about it before, but there's like a whole, you know, history of, in particular, like slavery apologists in America arguing that like, you know, black people are well suited to slavery and they actually like it and it's good for them and all it just like it's too close to that for comfort oh i mean it goes all the way back to like plato and aristotle and like the entire british empire was built on this kind of stuff and it still hangs around in the in the air there where it's like well if you read those kind of books then what do you expect uh but yeah, like Plato and Aristotle were were both like, listen, there's a lot of slaves in Athens and it has to be that way. And really, it's for the best. They don't even really have emotions or thoughts. And like, this is the best use of those kind of people. Like, you can tell they should be slaves because if they shouldn't be slaves, they would fight back against being slaves. So it's like it's it's the exact thing of like servants are dogs and they're well suited because they're dogs. You know, it's a tautology. I would be very interested to ask Philip Pullman his thoughts on this, of whether that's how he actually feels things are in this world, or if that was Lyra being not understanding the different classes in her world. Right. Other problematic that I encountered, um, kind of speaking again on slightly weird colonialist vibes, is the description of the Malefan architecture just gave me sort of strange feels like it felt like that very specific sort of orientalism where things are considered good because they are traditional or because they are different and it's like 
Ah, yes, the the savages, they work with nature in a way that we just can't because they are different from us. And it's like, I mean, no? And also, what the fuck? (laughs) I mean, I've been reading some, like, indigenous philosophy, epistemology of science stuff recently. And so, like... Like, on the one hand, like, I feel like there is something there because capitalism is a virus or cancer or whatever. It does stand in opposition to, like, a lot of indigenous ways of doing things. But also, there's a way of writing, of, like, a white person writing about it that is very, like, oversimplified, objectifying, mystical... And I would also point out, but I would point out there that we have this habit in the West of looking at Western philosophy versus indigenous philosophy. Western philosophy evolved from an, an indige, indigenous ideology. That is, how, that is how humans evolved. All philosophy is fundamentally rooted in the ideas behind indigenous philosophies. They may not be the same ones, but they are. Now, that's not to say that one is better or worse. And in fact, I would say in a lot of ways, things like fucking capitalism are, as you said, an absolute cancer. That doesn't make them good or bad. But it, the, I think the view that you have indigenous philosophies than other philosophies fundamentally ignore, well, like, it, it reinforces an idea that there is us and them. And I think that is an incredibly unhealthy idea when it's in fact, no, it, this is just humans. I think this is beyond the scope of the podcast. I do think there's like a level of exploitation and extraction that occurs in capitalism that is like fundamentally different and unsustainable in a fundamentally different way. I think because a lot of my reading has been focused on environmentalism, that's kind of like the very narrow place where I'm coming from. But I think you're you're totally right. If you expand outside of like interactions with the environment and resource exploitation that you like yes well i think it's super germane though you know the environmentalism angle because i think that's what this is about because of the climate change yeah i think that's why the mulefa culture is depicted as being superior in some sense to the other cultures of you know the other human cultures in the multiverse because it's more harmonious I, what I don't like about it is the like you have noble savage here is the noble savage problem of like the technology presents some kind of unsolvable problem for the savages because they don't have access to the technological knowledge mm. and therefore need the inventors to solve the problem. So it has to become some kind of synthesis of the two cultures to solve the problem which is super problematic because it justifies imperialism. In the end, this particular fr- this particular element of it just comes down to more white savior complex. Yeah. Why? And it's because they're different from us. It's like, actually, in this case, you can make that argument probably better than people make that argument, but they use that argument for a lot of shit in our world. Yeah, Pullman definitely didn't know he was writing that. Yeah. Yes. We could maybe argue back and forth about liar's classism, but this one, no, that was just his Yeah, yeah. his imperialism mm-hmm. coming out. It's kind of hippie imperialism, right? Because it's like a deferring your power to people who would be like, "Whoa, you're better than me because you're simpler." I'd be like, "What? What did you just say to me?" Uh, <laughs> yeah, actually yeah. that yeah, the kind of the kind of conservative hippie vibe really comes across there. Anyway, that was enough problematics. <laughs> How do we feel about Let's talk science? about science. Yeah, there's nothing problematic there. <laughs> right. Um Yeah, so I had a couple things that this section brought up for me that I wanted to talk about. So like Lyra Will and Mary talk a bit about the Mulefa and their world and how all of that relates to our understanding of evolution. And so um one of the things that Mary brings up, right, is that the Mulefa have that completely different diamond-shaped body plan. So the idea, right, is that in these different worlds or universes, 
you have evolution taking completely different trajectories. Um, and of course, I think this reinforces, right, the religious themes, the idea that there's not a god specially creating uh, animals and plants and stuff in like a predetermined image. It's, um, you know, kind of random chance determining how things turn out. Um, and so this reminded me of a thought experiment or concept often popularized by Stephen Jay Gould, who is a, a evolutionary biologist. Um, and he talked a lot about the idea of replaying life's tape. Um, so basically, like, if you could hit rewind on, you know, time, life on Earth, would the same things evolve? Or by, you know, the rule of just random chance, would things turn out completely differently? And I think um, Pullman is positing, like, yes, because you end up with this um, weird Mulefa world. Um, and there's been quite a bit of research on this, mostly using um, experimental evolution where we take um, populations of bacteria or other kind of like quickly reproducing organisms and you can literally have replicate populations and let them evolve over, you know, quote unquote, long periods of time relative to their generation time and then see, do you get the same outcome every single time is that the what like the one at um is it michigan state and uh um, ut austin oh yeah 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 the lt oh. ltee is it the long-term evolution experiment yeah so oh god i've i haven't met him i've met some of his grad students uh, i can't remember his name it's like richard something but yeah I, I know that that one was all about um basically every generation you take a sample and then you allow them to you know continue evolving or maybe like every 100 generations because yeah so, z coli it's going to be every 30 minutes is it for a generation yeah uh richard lensky the long-term evolution experiment through these experiments it's become clear that there is some amount of determinism and some amount of randomness that together determine what evolutionary outcomes are but the connection being in this case that like Pullman is kind of positing there's nothing essential about humans. And from, yeah. if yeah. I'm understanding what you're saying, you're saying, well, there are possibility sets, but there is like a kind of conditional, it is going to be a certain way within these parameters. If we just look at the universes that we have seen in the series, the number that have humans in them is improbably large as in there are two like <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> in fact there are three because there's also the um there's also Sitagatsa and then we have uh, we have um beings that are similar to in fact it's implied that there's a few more and there we have beings that are similar to i.e the Galavespians who are basically humanoid um mm -hmm. and like you're looking at, you're looking at all this and you're going well that is a in his universe that is extraordinary. But we, we haven't encountered any silicon-based life, for instance. We haven't encountered many places where there's just no life at all. I do think that kind of like your possibility space depends on how far you rewind, right? You know, so like it's possible that once you get the common ancestor of humans and chimpanzees, like something human-like was inevitable, right? Because if you think about it, like, humans weren't the only human-like thing to evolve, right? There were a bunch of different species, Neanderthals mm. and all of those, uh, you know, running around doing stuff. I like this idea that the Galavespians are evolved just from tiny monkeys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... They're like tamarins. The yeah. <laughs> But it, it bring, again, it brings up an interesting point that when did these universes diverge from each other? Did they yeah. diverge at the beginning? Were they just always parallel? Because if they were, then there's absolutely no reason for them to be anything like. I think we've talked about how they diverge at completely different points. Like there's always, there's infinite, they're always diverging. 
I think there is like a, a kind of category subsection of like, these are universes that have dust, which can be gotten to via the knife, right? Like it probably can't go somewhere where there's no dust. But okay. My question for Francis is, were you shocked by at the point of them where Mary talks about them not being vertebrates? Because this whole time I am at, I just because they were diamond shaped, I didn't think that they were necessarily invertebrates. Seems weird. Yeah, it doesn't make like any they... fucking sense. It's okay. possible that right. they are vertebrates, and Mary just doesn't understand that. Yeah, I thought this she's was not weird. A I mean, she is a okay. physicist, right? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> they'd be true. like bivertebrates okay. or some, you know, like yeah. I mean, yeah, like they could have two two spinal cords and two sets of vertebrae yeah. or something. That's because it just. Mm. I mean, if it seems like they have bones and like. Yes, for sure. At least on our Earth, everything that has bones is a vertebrate. Well, the other option really is exoskeleton or floppy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I knew I loved jellyfish for a reason. <laughs> floppy. <laughs> I was going to say, and she does point out that there are vertebrates there. So I would say they probably yeah. are some sort of vertebrate. She's just confused. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, vertebrates with a different body plan. But yeah, in this section, they talk a lot about, um, you know, like the mutualistic relationship between the mulefa and their trees and the seed pods that get used as wheels. And I was trying to think of like, what is the most similar example from our world of a mutualism like that um i think the ants and acacia trees is probably the closest because um acacia trees have basically un evolved an entire structure that's just there to um, provide shelter for the ants and then in return the ants protect the tree from herbivores but it also, it's kind of like a combination of that and then a seed dispersal mutualism, maybe. Um, and there are, like, tons of seed dispersal mutualisms. Usually, they come from eating. And then it's kind of like that also crossed with seeds that need very specific harsh conditions in order to germinate. So a lot of seeds do actually need, like, a harsh, um, cold period or like a winter and there's some other seeds that also basically like need brush fire um to trigger them to germinate the biology nerd in me part of it like really loves the mutualism between the mulefa and the tree wheels because it kind of brings together all of these different aspects from real biology in a really inventive and creative way Okay, now we're getting to the rant part. The one part that does kind of bother me is the the idea that there's these volcanic flows that make a road. It seems like it works on the surface. The problem is that geology is not stable over evolutionary timescales. So, like, the roads would have been worn down not just from being ridden on by wheels for thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of years, however long the Mulefa have been around with their culture. Um, but also, like, whether it just, it seems like a very unstable mutualism because the physical surface that it depends on, I could not imagine lasting super long. And so it just seems like a recipe for extinction. A counterpoint to the idea that geological ge geology is not stable on the evolutionary timescales is we have chemotrophs. So chemotrophs are animals which have evolved not to respire using oxygen, but instead they process the sulfurous chemicals coming out of essentially... Hydrothermal vents underwater. Yeah, hydrothermal vents um, down on the seafloor. Now, that's a that is a geological thing which okay, uh, okay. we have definitely had things evolved to deal with but i also agree that i think lava flows would have to be 
very regularly renewed in a consistent manner so maybe if you had weak points in the crust but then that would be a thing which they would probably have much have made much more of a big deal about in their culture because it they're probably more important or as important than as the trees yeah that's also, what i was thinking I how would you have giant trees yeah well and also it gives you a th a three-way mutualism and those are incredibly rare incredibly rare in nature and also that usually in order to have lava flows you need volcanoes and the area therein is described as very very flat I'm going to push back on your use of the phrase three-way mutualism because I don't think you can have a mutualism with a non-living thing and volcanoes don't benefit. On that note, do we want to move on to religion? There's a lot more Anya stuff. Yeah, sorry guys. Um, there were just so many <laughs> Don't good lie, quotes. you have a five-page document that you didn't put in the notes. <laughs> we know how you work, Alan. Don't yeah. <laughs> Um... I just, so when there was a line that Mary had when she was telling her story that says, uh, the Christian religion is a very powerful and convincing mistake, that's all. And the Buffy fan in my brain just immediately responded um, that like, as Giles would say, the subtext is rapidly becoming text. That they were just saying it. That's whatever. So good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Whatever Pullman had been implying a bit in books one and two now he's just like no christianity very powerful and convincing mistake and yeah so i wanted to talk a little bit about um mary's response to the the kiddos questioning her about good and evil because she says that wait what are you laughing at <laughs> the fact that you call them kiddos in the same episode that you're trying to convince us they had sex sorry <laughs> relatively speaking i <laughs> i call them the undergraduate students that i teach children behind ah, their backs okay so that's okay. fine yeah it's it's ton of, tongue and behind cheek. their backs i call them to their faces <laughs> yeah <laughs> i can get away with it i'm british it's fine uh anyway so mary says um Good and evil are names for what people do, not for what they are. All we can say is that this is a good deed because it helps someone, or that's an evil one because it hurts them. People are too complicated to have simple labels. Ugh, I love it. I love that so yeah. much. It's so good. I think it works because I, I believe that it's partially what Pullman believes, but it also comes across as like very genuine to what someone like Mary would land on after losing her faith. And it's also such a good thing to say after we just saw Mrs. Coulter and Azrael sacrifice themselves. Yeah. Oh my God. That's such a good point. Yeah. People are too complicated for simple labels. It's just such a good theme in the book. But they were bastards. They were bastards, but <laughs> they did do they a did couple it. of good things. They yeah. did. Yeah, I, I think that's like the heart of existentialism is like you're never totally inscribed. You always like every minute is another chance to turn it all around. Right. Yeah. And it's very inspirational. Yeah, I think it can be um, like you could be a really good person your whole life and become a total bastard at the last minute, too. So yeah. never give up hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can always be that bastard. And then the final quote that I pulled was um, the one that you referenced um, Alan in the intro about what Mary felt like she lost when she lost her faith. So initially when she's talking to um, Will and Lyra, she says, what I missed most is the sense of being connected to the whole of the universe. I used to feel I was connected to God like that. And because he was there, I was connected to the whole of his creation. Um, and then later on, the like omniscient narrator says, this was the very thing she told Will about when he asked if she missed God. It was the sense that the whole universe was alive and that everything was connected to everything else by threads of meaning. When she'd been a Christian, she had felt connected too. But when she left the church, she felt loose and free and light in a universe without purpose. Mm. Um, and then I guess I feel like, so there's an important bit that I didn't paste in here where I think she's able to find her purpose. I think she talks about the 
like the wind and the grass and the trees and everything. Um, and she saw what they were doing at last. She saw what the great urgent purpose was. They were trying to hold back the dust flood. They were striving to put some barriers up against the terrible stream. Wind, moon, clouds, leaves, grass, all those lovely things were crying out and hurling themselves into the struggle to keep the shadow particles in this universe, which they so enriched. Matter loved dust. It didn't want to see it go. That was the meaning of this night, and it was Mary's meaning too. Had she thought there was no meaning in life, no purpose, when God had gone? Yes, she had thought that. Well, there is now, she said aloud, and again louder. There is now. So I think it's like this really beautiful, almost like three short acts, right? Where it's like her belief in God gives her the sense of connection to everything and a sense of meaning and purpose. Then she, you know, loses her faith and loses that sense of connection and purpose, um, but actually sees it as a good thing because it it gives her a sense of like freedom. And then she manages to find a different type of purpose in the absence of her religious faith. Um, and so I think that's like, it's a little microcosm story that kind of mirrors the larger story uh, and, and like what I think Pullman is really trying to do with this series is show that you can find meaning and purpose without religion. One thing that I always also liked about how she says she misses the connection is that as someone who has never been a part of a religion, one thing that I've always liked about religions is the sense of community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in, I suppose, good ones, if you want to call it that, that you have this community behind you who will who will be there for you. And I can see where the feeling, the loss of the connection to the universe, she would also have lost that community. I would say also that it's important to note that a bunch of, well, cults use exactly the same problem as leverage against people who are in the cult you take away people's community you make it so the cult is their community and then it makes it harder to leave even the catholic church to an extent which isn't quite a cult still has those elements of um well yeah of shame and of uh social outcastness I mean, actually, it's, you know, I mean, excommunication. Yeah, I was going to say, it's literally excommunication. <laughs> <You're>, yeah. <laughs> yeah, throwing, yeah, you know, throwing people out of a community is a very powerful tool to use for your institution. Pullman is kind of saying here that this is what adulthood is. is like losing those old beliefs and constructing your beliefs you know, based on what you actually see and believe and can participate in and be responsible for and like do, right? Like you do being yeah. yourself. That is what adulthood is. And it comes at a cost of like losing the sureness that you had before. There's like a sadness to it, but that's part of what makes it real. We've been so fast recently like for our standards at least. And today we're at two hours and we haven't even started Alan's religion section my, yet. So. I will say my section is, <laughs> is very short. So oh, thank in God. the document is short. Yeah. So I would just acknowledge that we get a Garden of Eden scene. Like I don't want to just pass over. Like obviously that is, we don't get Passover, but we do get the Garden of Eden. <laughs> Uh, Wait, explain it to Anya because she doesn't understand. So first off, we get a long conversation from Mary where she explains like her backstory of her love life and all that, which is kind of like the serpent talking to Adam and Eve. I mean, she's literally the serpent in terms. That is that is her role. Yeah, yeah her designation. Yeah. And so she says to eat the marzipan, but they very intelligently have a fruit instead. They don't eat marzipan because they know it's bad. <laughs> yeah, fuck marzipan. <laughs> Am I the only person here who actually likes marzipan? Uh, are you the only person in the world who likes marzipan? Yeah. Her and Philip Pullman, apparently. But yeah, so she <laughs> she gives them kind of 
tacit permission to be like, these feelings are good and like natural. And the church told me that they were bad, but I felt that they were good. And so in the garden of Eden story, you get the command from God, don't eat the fruit. Uh, and then the serpent comes to Eve and says like, if you eat that fruit, nothing bad will actually happen. You'll become like God. And that's why he doesn't want you to eat it. Um, and kind of gives her permission or like exposes her to a viewpoint that she hasn't been exposed to before and saying like, you know, this is a thing that is an option for you. It's a choice. And I think that's why people think they have sex because right. Like eating the fruit, I guess it like it gives Adam and Eve body shame and like sexual awareness. I don't know. It's funny because in the Bible, the very first thing that Adam and Eve do is have sex. Like they, they see each other after Eve has been created from Adam and then immediately have sex. And that's before the fruit. Yeah. And it's fine. It's way before the fruit. Yes. So they, they haven't even been told about the fruit at that point. I guess, you know, like biblically it's, it portrays sex as natural, which then some people would take the extra step and say heterosexual sex is natural. Um, But it's just saying that like sex is just a thing that people do. Just like eating food and naming things, which are the other two things that Adam and Eve do. <laughs> I did also just want to throw out that during this chapter, when they're talking about the mulefa and the vertebrates and invertebrates, the one vertebrate they mention is a snake the as existing yeah. in this world. I, I noticed like, that too. I understand that you literally, a couple paragraphs later, literally say Christianity was a mistake, but also <laughs> you're kind of hammering us on the head with this here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I don't like it, but it's, yeah. There's a, you know, like all the Greek gods have um, animals that are associated with them. Um, I think most people are more familiar with like the bird sign, less like Zeus has eagle, Athena has an owl. Um, but Athena's actual animal, Athena is the goddess of wisdom, is a snake. For people who are familiar, you know, like the early Christians of the first 200 years of Christianity, who are familiar with Greek mythology, and, and the Gnostics especially, wisdom being in the form of a serpent, or like a serpent being, you know, wise beyond its seeming capacity, would be like, an obvious reference to Athena. And I, th- I think Philip Pullman preserves that idea here. Like he's playing with Gnostic stuff on purpose. And so the, the garden of Eden thing is where, you know, Lyra and will feed each other the fruit and admit their love for each other. And like are relieved and gratified and like they kiss, they come to a fuller knowledge of each other, which feels more Gnostic this is not like a fall, right? This is depicted as a very good thing that happens to them. And so it's inverting the place of Eden in traditional Catholic theology of like, here is a bad thing that happened. And the magisterium thinks that this is a bad thing that's happening and casts it in a more Gnostic way where they come to a deeper knowledge of each other and themselves. And that's a good thing. That's sort of fulfilling the whole theme of the book, that knowledge and wisdom is good and not knowledge is bad. Right. What? So the most, the biggest thing to me is, again, we're going to go back to Mary's chapter talking to the kiddos um, and how <laughs> I really, really, really like that Mary does not come to some kind of like epistemological um what's what's the word when it's like occam's razor when it's like you get rid of the extra stuff um uh parsimony yeah she yeah maximum parsimony she doesn't she doesn't have like a maximum parsimony moment of like new atheism for for a conversion i see this as like she has a philosophically basic um, kind of anti-conversion or whatever. She doesn't. She doesn't go like there is no God in the universe. Therefore, I must be an atheist, right? She has what Calvin called, and we've talked about this a bunch of times, the sensus divinitatis, 
this extra sense, right? Beyond your like other senses that you have this inner sense that you have that like God is out there and he's real and he's talking to me and I feel like there's a God and therefore I have this basic belief the same way that I know that I'm hungry or need to pee. I know that there's a God. I don't need to justify it. Like I feel it. That's what Mary has, except it's no God. She has a feeling that there is no God. And so her belief is basic, philosophically basic is is what that's called. Now you can have basic beliefs that are incorrect, that are like factually wrong, that are provably wrong. Uh, But it doesn't, it doesn't like contravene that the fact that they're basic, like you really do feel whatever it is that you really do feel. So the, the point of what I'm saying is that like Mary's personal kind of subjectivity is at the heart of how she needs to live her life. So this is kind of gets back into existentialism. It's not devotion to the ideology of atheism or science or, or like a different kind of Christianity. She's not an atheist because the absence of God logically demands she be an atheist. She's an atheist because she feels deep down in herself, there is no God. She chooses to be an atheist as an expression of authenticity to herself. Ooh, I like that way of phrasing it. So I, I really, really like that in the way that she talks to the kids about it. She never like lays out a reductio about God and being like, only an idiot would believe in God because clearly there's no God and I'm not an idiot. And therefore, you know what I mean? Like there's a real shitty way. Like sometimes she's you hear not this. A, uh, she's not a Christopher Hitchens. Yeah. Richard Dawkins, new atheist. Exactly. Yeah. It, where it's or like, mo- oh, you know, the, I've suffered this yeah. big loss and I, I wish that I was an idiot who believed that there was an afterlife so that I could see them later. But unfortunately, I'm a magnificent genius and I can't believe in religion. <laughs> So like she's not <laughs> shitty about it um, is what I'm saying. And it's very existential in its character, uh, the the entire way that it's built. So I just really, really appreciate it. It's very human and very like excellent. So that's uh, that's everything that I wrote down for religion. Ta-da! Ta-da! I, I apparently have somehow defeated Anya in this next bit and it makes me feel good. Yes, I I concede that Mary has probably had more than one orgasm oh. based on <laughs> based on the fact that she did have a partner who she lived with for many years. So I'm assuming they figured that out. Okay, well, I think that's it for this episode. Next time, we will be talking about chapters 36 through 38, and we will be finishing our last episode on the Amber Spyglass. Oh my god. So that's very exciting. If you like our show, please take some time to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and I'm sex crazed, and you can follow me on Twitter. <laughs> I'm sorry, at Strangely I'm sorry. God. That's not what I was trying to say. <laughs> no, it's fine. I was just... I'm just giving you a hard time. Uh, that's strangely than L I T E R L. Uh, I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. I'm Francis, and I am sex positive, and you can follow me on Twitter at Francis Windrum. <laughs> you can follow the show on Twitter at M O T Pod. Need more than 280 characters to speak your mind? Send your emails to contact at hollowedgroundmedia.com. And remember to never trust British children when it comes to the very important topic of candy. Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. I'm Francis. And I'm Anya. Oh, Oh, fuck. Weird. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I just forgot that you existed. I'm literally in your house. I knew the lag was quite something. I didn't realize you were compensating that heavily for it. Fuck. I just got really excited. Sorry. <laughs> I'm glad it'd that re- uh, it'd, it'd be a really cool while move. Will... Just like I'm glad you... that while Will. <laughs> Sorry. Fine, fine. You keep going. Oh my god. Oh my god. No, no, no. You've made a big deal out of it now.
No, you go. <laughs> then I'll go. Anya, you just edited my quote from the book. It's a no, quote from the book. No, but that is the actual... I know, and I'm pretty sure... Sh- no, because I... I'm literally looking at it. I felt as if something Ugh. they all passionately believed in depended on me carrying on with something I didn't. <laughs> Fine, fine. <laughs> Look, different editions in different countries, okay? Yeah. Maybe, maybe. No, no, um, no, no, But there was definitely, like, uh, in the 80s and 90s, and <clears throat> not that I lived there, but Francis, be quiet while I'm talking, please. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I think there you was, like, a... You tell the father, can't you? Yeah. <laughs> I should read the document so I don't <laughs> forget <laughs> things. I, um, and I definitely want... modify all of Caitlin's quotes. Uh, she's reading that. that I have literally copied from the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's actually, Anya is who Philip Pullman's editor is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, okay, well, I guess I'm, my work here is done. I'm just going to take my headphones out and... <laughs> On to problematic. for the rest. Of- <laughs> Even though it's funny, I feel like usually I have the least text in our document, and this time it's like ninety percent me. Oh, I love it. It's good. I wrote my stuff on a little sticky because I didn't want you all seeing my notes. Good, good. <laughs> what? Because we might edit them. <laughs> well, as uh, as we have seen today, we will edit Philip Pullman if we need to. I mean, honestly, we could probably have done that for the betterment of humanity. <laughs> that's not a philosophical point that's a sociological point that's a powerpoint (laughs) sorry i didn't mean i didn't mean that to be a microsoft uh, office joke but but like (laughs) it's more into it um whose phone was that (laughs) that was caitlin was scrolling through facebook while you all had your science orgasm Kate, Kate, Caitlin needs to learn to mute their microphone when they browse Twitter like the rest of us. Yes. <laughs> Please cut that out. No. You mean put it at the end as an outtake? Yes. <laughs> Worlds that took such a different evolutionary track yeah. might be completely different shapes. Shapes isn't yeah. the word. You it's know what I'm a saying. triangle world. <laughs> I didn't mean that. I meant like the mountains and shit for fuck's sake. It would be like Look, hexagon world is I guess mountains world. are That's kind of saying. a triangle. Or like some kind of <laughs> yeah. weird I have um, a alternative, but we'll come to that when you finish your rant. It's not a rant, it's a lecture. Your your um, when you finish your lecture, Professor. <laughs> There'd be more yelling if I was ranting. Um, <laughs> I enjoyed that somebody wrote climate change, bolded it, underlined it, and italicized I it. Didn't, I didn't do all that to it, but I just wrote it initially. Yeah, make it thick. <laughs> the real podcast is in our notes, folks. <laughs> I wish you guys could see these. That's what Pullman thinks anyway. But I know that adulthood is just like... You know, you just Chores. indulge yourself in anything oh, you want that. constantly. I indulge myself in I like... crying into my morning whiskey. <laughs> that's funny. I like how you said adult is, or adult, being an adult is, and you went with hedonism and yeah. I went with chores, even though I feel like that's the reverse <laughs> of our actual personality. Yeah, it's probably the opposite. 